Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Todd Lewicki is no stranger to Seattle sports. He was the president of the Seattle Seahawks from 2003 to 2010 before leaving to join the Tampa Bay Lightning. And while in Seattle, he also oversaw the highly successful launch of the Sounders FC. While he was with the Seahawks, they went to a Super Bowl. He got to be acting president of the Portland Trailblazers. And Pete Carroll was hired as coach, among many other important things. Least of which was he was scheduled to appear in the Albers Executive Speaker Series in October 2010, but he had to bow out because of the move to Tampa, as Father referenced. But as he has now learned, it's hard to escape the clutches of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. (laughs) In Tampa, he became CEO of Tampa Bay Sports and Entertainment, which included the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Tampa Bay Storm, and the Tampa Bay Times Forum. He left Tampa in 2015 to join the NFL as new chief operating officer. And he was back to hockey in April of 2018 when it was announced he would lead NHL Seattle. His start with sport franchises was with the New York Arrows, an indoor soccer team. And he has also worked with the Minnesota Wild, the Vancouver Canucks, and Golden State Warriors. So let's welcome Todd Lewicki to Seattle U. Well, good evening, and I'm happy to be here. And I actually have a presentation and a clicker, which is important. And this is really a story not just of an NHL team, and I see this individual walking down here with a Seattle Metropolitans trying to hide wearing that jersey, all right? But it's really a story about an arena and a challenge that we had as a community with all the great things happening in this community to fix this issue. And not being able to fix this issue cost this community a lot. Last year, in the final year of operations of the arena, Key Arena, Des Moines, Iowa had more concerts than we did here in Seattle. And this is a music-rich city. We deserve better. So we not only didn't get music shows, but a really tough thing happened that we lost an NBA team. And this was a Rubik's Cube that just didn't seem to get solved. So I want to walk you through that. I'm going to tell you all about the arena. Then we're going to talk about the launch of the team. I'm going to try and do this quickly so we can leave time for questions. But I'm happy to be here. When we think about what makes Seattle great, this university comes top of mind for me. 128 years. Father, I thought you were going to say you met me at the beginning of the university, but this university is a special place. And, you know, 7,000 students can attest to that. But I think we all know that not only is this city's best days in front of it, this university's best days are in front of it. And so I'm happy to be here. And and let me sort of tell you the story of the journey that this arena's been on. Seattle Center really came into being with a lot of visionaries in the late 1940s and 50s who were thinking of commemorating the 50th anniversary of a World's Fair that was here in Seattle. They were bold. They were visionary, and that's what the World's Fair was all about, was a bold vision of what the world was going to bring, a technology. And, and I remember my boss, Paul Allen, talking about going there and having that really change his perception of what the world could be and his perception of Seattle. 
because at that point in time, Seattle really took a front step, a leading role in, in the world and technology and what was around the corner. So the arena was built as a part of the World's Fair site, and lots of great things happened in that building, and lo and behold, in 1967, the Sonics came to town. And it was a heck of a run. In 1979, I believe, they won the World's Championship and brought joy and memories to people that they still recount today. But the building needed work. It was a one-level building. It was not adequate for the NBA. The Sonics left. They played in the Kingdome. They played in Tacoma, but they came back to a renovated building in 1994. But shortly thereafter, people realized it wasn't enough. And the owners of the Sonics turned to the state and the, and the county and the city and said, we need a new arena. And the sensibilities of this community were changing. And the sensibilities of the community were changing relative to public dollars being put into facilities like this. And the debate ensued, and it kept going, and it didn't get resolved. And in 2008, of all things, Seattle lost an NBA team to Oklahoma City. I was up in Vancouver working for the Grizzlies and Canucks. The Grizzlies moved to Memphis, and the Sonics moved to Oklahoma City. And I'm not sure that was great strategic planning, but it happened. Um, and in the meantime, we were starting the Sounders. It was never a question in my mind of fan support. The Seahawks became the loudest stadium. The Sounders set all records for soccer in North America. So it really wasn't about the fans. It was about solving the Rubik's Cube of an arena. And the challenges were immense. Key Arena was a city-owned asset and continued decline, not only in a physical decline, but in a perceptual decline. People looked at the arena and it thought it had failed them. And buildings have souls. The building took a lot of guff that it didn't deserve because it actually was a beautiful building designed by an architect named Paul Theory, and the roof was meant to replicate a Native American rain hat and was designated a National Historic Landmark. Nonetheless, the building was deemed inadequate. But if you were going to fix it, you not only had to have it ready for the NBA's return, you had to make it work for the NHL. Very complex engineering because you had to take this roof, which raised something like, Eric, I think 40 million tons or 40 million pounds, some crazy amount of weight, and hold that in place while you built a new arena. You had to double its size to make it adequate. It had to be privately financed, and you had to deal with this idea that the roof was landmark status. In 2017, the city issued an RFP, wondering if anyone would respond, if anyone would take it on. And I'm very proud to tell you it was my brother who did. My brother who was in Los Angeles starting a new company called the Oakview Group. He developed the Staples Center in many buildings around the world. And I kept telling him Seattle was a special place. The fans were special and it could work here. He responded to that RFP and they started dreaming about what could be. And this is what came out of it. The idea of a whole new arena, an arena that would not have a back of house, an arena where parking would go underground and we'd fix that issue that kept concerts from coming here. Believe it or not, it was a back of house issue where there were only two loading docks. Today, you know, when I'm, I talk about the arena, one of the things I'm most excited about, believe it or not, are eight loading docks that will allow shows to load in and load out on the very same day. We also felt that we could change Seattle Center and that like this university, that Seattle Center's best days could be in front of it because this occupied a major footprint on that campus. And lo and behold, through the great work of the architect populace and m and &E Engineering, and they are real heroes in this story, they developed a plan that took us from that 1962 model to the 95 renovation, which got part of the way there, to now in 2021, taking a building from 400,000 square feet to 800,000 square feet and literally building the world's first subterranean arena. 
an arena that is going to scale. This beautiful roof doesn't grow. It still stays in perfect context with the neighborhood it's in. The roof will get cleaned up, but under it will be a brand new spectacular building. And one of the perceptual issues we've had to deal with is people had talked about it as a renovation. It's not a renovation. It's a brand new spectacular arena. And it will be, we think, I say, the most beautiful arena in the world, the only arena in a park in the whole world. And the only addition allowed by Landmark Commission was a grand entryway on the south side of the arena where there used to be buildings and almost blight will now be the grand entryway. All of the services underground. So the building will have no back of house. Four sides of the building equally as beautiful and welcoming fans. How you do it is tough. So we had to hire the smartest people, the smartest. This is the gentleman that actually built uh, the baseball park. He built the hockey arena in Kent, and he's built many other things, and he's going to give a, a quick overview of how, how you do this. When they did the expansion in 95, they kind of did a V on their excavation. We're doing straight down. That's why the building's doubling in square footage from 400,000 square feet to 800,000 square feet. This is all part of this critical stage we're at, which is getting the site ready for the full excavation. So that means a lot of the shoring work you see going on, a lot of the drilling, the piles being put in place. The shoring tower is another part of it. That shoring tower will be in place as we do this massive 600,000 cubic yard excavation underneath this iconic roof. Because as you can see behind me, the arena's gone. We've got the roof, the arena's gone, but we have to put in place all the support systems to hold that roof up temporarily while we do the excavation, then we can reconnect the old roof. So those footings are amazing. And a lot of architects said it just couldn't happen. It couldn't work. You couldn't do it. And that's why this struggled for so many years. But it's not only a science, it's an art. And so those engineers said, no, we think they can. And so the structures are now in place that are holding up this roof, preparing it not only for all the things that will happen under it, but for a seismic activity. So I pray, Father, and I sleep. And my last prayer is I hope that roof holds until at least sunup. But it has, and it's magnificent, and this is what's happened. We've been able to take the footings, cut the rebar, temporary support systems are in place. We'll now excavate all the way down. We'll rebuild those footings from 70 feet on the sides, 15 feet deeper in the middle, and reconstruct a brand new arena under that roof. And this is what we'll end up with, a spectacular arena, steeper and more intimate than the prior arena closer, all the seats substantially closer, 17,000 for hockey, 18,000 for basketball, and spectacular for music. People thought fondly of seeing shows in the old building, and I said, well, it's great value because you used to hear the show twice, and that's called bad acoustics. This building will be concert perfect. And one of the great things you can see here, the patrons who will walk in on the upper deck will literally walk right up to their seat. The rest of the building will cascade down. So the folks in the upper deck are going to feel like they won the lottery. And that means a lot to us because we're going to try and make this a building that every man, woman, and child in this community will want to come to. It'll be spectacular on the exterior, but it'll be also incredible on the interior. We think we're going to have one of the leading concert venues in the nation. Live Nation is our partner. And we're building this in a very specific way to host music. The artist quarters in the back to the acoustics. We think it's going to be a special building for music. We think it's going to be an incredible building for basketball. And we're so proud of the Storm and everything they represent and all their championships. And we hope that championship spirit rubs off on our team. 
but we'll also be home, we believe, someday for the NBA. When they come back, we're going to be ready. This building's going to be ready, and everything we're doing is with thoughtfulness about bringing the NBA back to its rightful place. We're hopeful about that, but we're absolutely sure that the NHL's coming. In 2021, the NHL will return. The fans have spoken, and it's going to be really quite remarkable. And in fact, I want to sort of take you on the journey now of that NHL team. I have a couple more slides on interiors. The building interiors are going to be spectacular. World-leading designers are designing these interior spaces, and it's really what Seattle deserves. That's our Space Needle Club. This is an image of a suite, and this is another one of our premium spaces. This is a club we're calling the Millennial Club. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be hip, and there will be different offerings there. So we're trying to create space that will serve every segment of our population here in the city. But at the end of the day, we know we have to launch an NHL team. So we're not only building that arena and all the complexity, we're starting a team from absolutely scratch. And the first thing you have to do to prove to the NHL is that you're NHL ready and that the fan support was here. Many people question that. In Las Vegas, it took them seven or eight months to sell the prerequisite 10,000 tickets. Well, it took us 12 minutes. And it was really remarkable, and it was a fulfillment of what I had told my brother, that the fans here are different. These are the greatest sports fans, I think, in the world. And I witnessed it firsthand with the Seahawks and the Sounders. Well, that day was epic. I was actually working at the NFL. My brother was recruiting me hard to come back and do this. I was in a meeting with my boss. I'll never forget it. My brother wrote me a note. I didn't respond. He wrote again, and then he wrote, it's an emergency. I got up, and he said, we just sold 10,000 tickets in 12 minutes. you got to come home. And I did. And I did because at the end of the day, this is about the fans, and we're going to reward them. We're going to reward them with a great building, but a great team. And the way we're going to do it is building out a world-class staff. And one of the biggest decisions we'll make as a general manager, this is a guy named Ron Francis. And so now with a story we had to tell on the building, this beautiful community, the amazing fan support, we felt we were in a perfect position to recruit the best GM out there. And while we acted like there were multiple candidates, there was always one in my mind that if we could ever get this guy who is really hockey royalty, and I'll demonstrate that for you. He played in the NHL for 23 years. He was number two in overall assist. And in the NHL, an assist counts the same as a goal. So assist men are held in high esteem. And he was number two in the history of the game in assists, number four in overall games played, number five in goals scored. He won the Stanley Cup twice. He was inducted to the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2007, but my favorite statistic about Ron Francis is he played on three teams, and he was the captain of all three teams. He's coming here, he's going to lead our team, and I couldn't be more thrilled, and that's what the fans deserve. Hey, if you want to applaud, you can, all right, because that's pretty cool. And then he's now building out his team, and everything I did to recruit him, he's now using to recruit the best scouts, and I'll just point out, we're building a different kind of organization. We're the first team in the history of the league to have a woman as a scout, professional scout. That's Cami Granato. Our first hire in hockey was a woman named Alex Mandrecki. She's the head of our analytics. She had three offers from teams but chose to come here, knowing that the GM hadn't been hired and she might not make it. Well, they have hit it off, and she is going to become one of the great leaders in hockey. And I'll just pause and talk a little bit about diversity. We have a chance to do things different. We're trying. Eric Pettigrew is right here. Would you stand up and wave, sir? (laughs) 
As he says, the uncomfortable truth about Eric is that he played for Oregon State offensive line, all right? But I was at the state capitol one day, and the state representative, Pettigrew, one of the most respected state representatives, came up and didn't talk to me about state taxes or other things. He came up to talk to me about the hockey team, and I realized, oh my gosh, this guy's a hockey fan. And it not only resonated with me, but we're building one of the most diverse staffs in sports, and so I am so proud that this guy's chosen to join us and is going to help lead the way. And next time you need a speaker, this guy is here, and he's ready to speak. But we're building that team. And we're really confident that when we pick that team in 2021, we're going to be in a great spot. We hired the GM a year earlier than Las Vegas did, and we're really excited by that. But we needed a training center, and this was a huge ask of ownership. The city of Seattle did not have one sheet of ice. There's sheets of ice around the community, but ownership got behind the idea that we needed to build a world-class training center. Somehow we ended up in a discussion with the Simon Company who owns the Northgate Mall. They were trying to reinvent the Northgate Mall. And we had a discussion with them that led to us developing a three-sheet facility there that's going to be world-class. It'll be a sheet for our team, but all three will be available for public use. We'll have a 1,000 seats on one side. Administrative offices will be there. In 2021, the light rail will stop directly in front of this facility. As Ron has said, it's fantastic. We'll go pick up players we're recruiting at the airport, and if we cut them, we'll send them back to the airport on light rail. Here's how those three sheets work. And the last piece, really, in putting together the hockey organization, and sort of as I conclude my prepared remarks, is the last piece is we had to develop our AAA team, our AAA baseball team, if you will. And we looked far and wide and said, where is a unique place where players will want to go, coaches will want to coach? How can we take the success we're feeling here in Seattle and replicate that? And lo and behold, Palm Springs presented itself, a new arena being developed right in the heart of the city. Ron Francis's comment on that was concerned that if we called players up, they might not want to come up to Seattle, that they'd have a golf game or the weather would be better. But here's a quick video on Palm Springs. In 2021, professional hockey has a new home. Palm Springs. From historic Hollywood hangout to world-class destination, is now home to the Coachella Valley's first ever professional sports team. The American Hockey League affiliate to the NHL's newest expansion team in Seattle, AHL Palm Springs, making its home at the new arena at Agua Caliente in the heart of downtown. Be there in 2021. Reserve your seats now. Submit deposits for season tickets at ahlpalmsprings.com. We got fire. Bring on the ice. The American Hockey League is a really important part of building a competitive team. It's where you'll send players to develop, so we're really excited and think it gives us a great advantage. Here's just a couple more renderings of the building, and now I'm going to answer any questions, and I'm actually in a great mood. I'll answer any question because I'm going to Palm Springs tomorrow, all right, to work on that project, so there you are. I really like the line about you get to hear the concert twice, by the way. I got to remember that. So we have our three panelists. They'll pose a few questions, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. So let me introduce them. First closest to Todd is as Hannah Greider, 
She's a student in our Master of Sports Business Leadership program. She's a Seattle native, and she got her undergraduate degree in psychology at Linfield College. And she became interested in the intersection of, intersection of behavior in sports while being a cross-country and track and field team member there at Linfield. So she came back to Seattle to pursue her degree in sports business. She's currently an events marketing intern at Brooks Running, where she's able to apply her studies in a creative and practical way. Next is Santiago Gallo. He works as first team administrator and community involvement manager for the Rain FC, our professional women's soccer team. Santiago is an industrial engineer and native of Bogota, Colombia, and he discovered there his interest in sports and sustainability. After working for EY as a climate change and sustainability consultant, he moved to Seattle to earn his master in sports business leadership. And then finally, furthest from me is June Lindbergh. She is an undergraduate senior in Albers, majoring in finance and marketing. She's primarily interested in the business of sports and entertainment. A highlight for her for her time at Albers was taking her sports and entertainment marketing course, which inspired her to pursue work in the Seattle sports scene, including positions with the Seattle Mariners and Nike Seattle. So our three panelists, and Hannah, why don't you go first? Sure. Okay. So I guess initially, what kind of encouraged you to make the transition back to Seattle? You talked about the fan base, but what kind of led you to invest more in the city? When I left, I went to the Lightning, and um, it was uh, a great experience. I had a chance to work with one of the great hockey legends, Steve Eiserman, who was the captain of the Detroit Red Wings for 19 years. I also had a chance to, to become an owner of a team, and, and so it was a really thrilling thing. But uh, earlier in my life, I chaired the United Way campaign was when I was here, and I convinced Roger Goodell to climb Rainier with me, and he never forgave me, so he virtually made me go to the NFL and become the chief operating officer. I actually really enjoyed it. It was a whole different perspective on a career in sports where I had worked mostly at teams and the ability to go to a league office and see such interesting things. But I grew up loving hockey, and when my brother started talking about the arena, I just cheered him on, and when I realized, oh my gosh, it's going to happen, you know, coming back wasn't a hard decision. Um, seeing the big new arena that you're building, like question came to my mind about knowing my background in sustainability. How are you looking forward on like taking care of the environment with this construction? And at the same time, knowing that the Seattle, like people's principles are so progressive and so environmentally friendly. How do you want to educate your fans to take care of the environment? Also knowing that the sport needs from ice and global warming is affecting that so much? Well, the arena stands for the state because instead of throwing things out, we make them better. So we didn't just raise the building and get rid of it. We said we're going to fix this. And so I think it's so appropriate for Seattle that we're taking something that was once a great landmark and had fallen on hard times. And in fact, its best days will now be in front of it as well. But we have a great chance to do all sorts of things. And we want the building to be totally environmentally sustainable, leaning in on all aspects relative to everything from trash disposal to how you take food that hasn't been eaten and give it new purpose. And in Seattle, you can do these things. And you're encouraged to do them because the people here care about those things deeply. And this is a special and unique place where we have a great privilege of doing those things. Awesome. So in kind of in conjunction with that question, I was really curious about how you and your team 
came up with the vision that you did? Obviously, this is a massive project. Like, where do you even begin with that? You know, it started really with an, a need. I was heartbroken when the Sonics left, and I didn't understand it. How could we, a city that was at the, even at that point in time growing, um, and this is the largest market in the U.S. without a winner team. The building cost more than we had anticipated for sure. And I think as we got into it, the owners, uh, in fact, John Meisenbach is right here, but the, the owners encouraged us to just keep pushing. David Bonderman is uh, the owner of the team, and he's in a partnership with the OVG group on the arena. OVG is 51% of the arena, and Mr. Bonderman, 49, and he owns the team. And I think once you get into it, the practice facility and the training center are an example of that, that we realized that, you know, to not build a new sheet of ice was really cutting a corner if we wanted to grow the sport. You know, you just kept believing. And at the end of the day, you have to believe in the fans. I think they really started this movement because if that day tickets had been a hard sell or deposits hadn't happened, Maybe we wouldn't have been quite as bullish on this, but it's now become a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think we have a chance to build one of the great franchises in all the sports. So speaking of the fans, again, you talk about the fan base as being very important and a very neat aspect of Seattle. How do you incorporate the fans' opinions or what they're looking for when building a new franchise? Well, you got to listen. And in fact, when I started at the Seahawks, three games in the brand-new stadium didn't sell out. I came the second year, and my first game with the Seahawks didn't sell out. We had 26,000 season tickets. And, you know, I knew Mr. Allen very much cared about the fans, but there was something missing there. And so we just tried to take the stadium and make it a really fan-friendly place. And that started with lots of small things like getting the guest services staff to feel good about being there. And kickoff was at 1. I'd go to the stadium at 8.30 to try and cheer people on who were going to interact with the staff. And we took a flagpole and put it in the end zone, and we resurrected the 12th man tradition. And... And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we had policies that, you know, visiting team fans shouldn't sit in the best seats. We had policies that were allowing that to happen. And we're going to have some of those same policies in what we're doing. We're going to do some very, very unique things on tickets that I'm very, very proud of. And if you believe in the fans, and, you know, to tell you the truth, I am a fan. I remember coming home after I bought four club seats, and my wife said, what, don't you get tickets? But I wanted to live the life of the fan and see what that was like. And there was a lot of room for improvement there at the Seahawks. But once we started doing that, it became an organizational mission. And we had such a great owner in Paul Allen, who was truly a fan. He loved the team. He wanted to see the stadium filled. And then once it started to fill, it, it really had a life of its own. And then players wanted to play there. And then a guy like Pete Carroll wanted to come and coach here. And then the fans won. And I think Seahawks fans today are living a great life. I've seen you work with a lot of men's sports teams and working for the rain and see how women's soccer has grown internationally, how the U.S. has the best team in the world, how the rain has the best player in the world. For example, a lot of people don't even know that tomorrow we travel for a semifinal. Like, how can we create this fanship here, as like the Sounders may have, and how can we develop women's sports and women's soccer around this area much more so that the rain, the storm, and other clubs can be much more popular. Well, when I met you, I saw your jacket and commented on it because I have a lot of admiration for the rain. And Megan is a, one of the greatest athletes in the modern era. Sue Bird is remarkable. The storm are going to be in a great position playing in our building. They have a great lease. 
They're going to be in a position to be profitable, and they can set the pace for not only the WNBA, but women's professionals teams, setting the pace by having a full building and being profitable and expecting that of teams. And that's a really important thing is that uh, WNBA teams deserve to play in first-class facilities, and our team is going to play in what I think is going to be the most beautiful arena in the world, and it's going to have a real impact. But there's more things we could do. It's living that, and you know, we have nine vice presidents, seven of them are women. Those are things that I'm really proud of that I think need to be righted in this industry because there have been things in this business that I'm proud of, and there's some things I'm not so proud of, and I, we have a chance to do a lot of things right here. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So this is not new to you. Obviously, you've been in Seattle. However, with the new franchise, I was wondering what kind of partnerships do you want to see? Because obviously, Seattle is such a hub for tech, medicine, philanthropy. What partnership are you hoping to see in the future with NHL Seattle? Well, when you build a building privately, you're going to have to be good at corporate partnerships. And that's not donation. You have to create a value proposition where a leading company will say, I want to put my marks and brands and associate them with the building and the team. And so we've tried to methodically build an enterprise here that's worthy of that kind of support. You know, you're only as good as the company you keep. So if you associate with good brands, it comes back on you. When I went to Tampa, we were losing a lot of money and we lost more because we actually walked away from $2 million of sponsorship my first year because the companies were not companies that we or I were proud of. And so that was a great testament to that owner because he understood that principle. And so it's a really important thing. We're right now engaged in building partnerships in the community and trying to create a value proposition that will not only attract a company as a partner, but want them to stay with us for the long haul. You've held a lot of executive positions in your career. So. Can't hold a job. <laughs> I was just wondering, so what kind of advice or what kind of knowledge or skills would you recommend to people who are aspiring to be leaders? You know, I, my journey is I didn't get to go to university. So I actually was really excited to come here tonight because that's a great question that I very much want to answer, which is, so I grew up in a very small town in Missouri had a tough upbringing. I lost a mother when I was uh, nine and lost my stepmother to cancer when I was 17. And and it was not the path that I would ever hope for someone else, but i worked my way out of there. It literally went to work, but felt for a long time that I was kind of disadvantaged and didn't belong certain places. And And then at some point in time, the switch flipped. I realized that, you know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. It certainly helps if you have a degree. It certainly helps if you have a master's degree. And so I salute you. But I say to everybody here, believe in yourself, the soccer teams here. And that's one great thing about sports. It's not always the fittest team that wins. It's not always the most skilled players that win. It's the teams that play together. And hockey is a great team sport. The players are in the ice for an average of about a minute four lines shift in a seamless way and it's really a team sport and if they're playing as a team they'll beat the other guys and so I learned a lot of lessons about that and I just encourage everybody that's here that if you believe in yourself and you believe in this great country where anything can happen if you put your mind to it anything can happen 
So you've talked a lot about the fans and very clearly Seattle is so special because we do have some of the most amazing fans, I think obviously around the world and in the country. So hockey is really unique though, because I think Seattle and hockey, in my mind, when I heard we had an NHL franchise coming, I was super excited. But I was also kind of curious, like how would NHL Seattle reach out to communities that might not necessarily connect with hockey based on just like culturally, that's not something that is present. What does NHL in Seattle have looking forward to address that? I admit it's a bit of an acquired taste, and it's a sport that it's live. It's fantastic, and many people who see it live say it's the best live sporting experience. It's a little harder for people to understand just watching a game on TV, so you have to go out and develop. I'll tell a brief story, you know, and part of how you develop is you look like the people that you want to encourage, and I've always believed that sports can make people better, just participating in sports and so I was down in Renton skating one day and I saw this guy and he was flying around the rink and he was a really good skater and he was an African-American guy. Like, and, you know, you hate to stereotype, but I was surprised. So I caught up with him and it took me like three laps, but I finally caught up to him. And lo and behold, we started talking and I knew his dad. His dad was the team doctor of the Minnesota Wild. So on the ice, he pulls his phone out and calls his dad. And he said, you'll not guess who I ran into here at the rink. He was a teacher at Lakeside High School, grew up in Minnesota. He was educated at Princeton. Um, and his dad was talking to me. He said, hey, you got the wrong kid. It's my daughter who wants to talk to you. So I hung up the phone and I said to Kyle, hey, you and your sister should come have coffee. Well, today she's our vice president of strategic planning and he's the head of all of our youth hockey development. And... Uh, they're fantastic. So the boy children are going to lead us in a powerful way. And I'm very proud of her. She represents diversity, but she is rocket smart and someday could be the president of a team. She's just fantastic. And Kyle is a great educator. He taught at one of the best schools and gave up that career in education to come and, and lead our teaching. And he'll not just teach hockey, he'll teach life skills associated with sports. So now we're going to go to questions from the audience. Yeah, Thank you, panelists. So the way this will work is there's a mic in each aisle. You'll need to raise your hand, and then they will try to bring you the mic. Hi. Um, Hi. I just have a general question. Have you guys picked a name for your team yet? <laughs> wow. My dad really wants to know. <laughs> so that's the other thing I pray about at night, actually. Uh, but, you know, team names are really hard in this world. There's so many registered trademarks, and there's been a lot of history of picking names and having huge trademark issues, so that's the first one. The Seattle Times did a, a poll, and they had 100,000 submissions, and there were over 1,000 unique names. One was the Seattle Socialites, the Seattle Head Tax. There were, you know, there were, so I got through some of that pretty quickly, but there were a lot of legitimate names. And I'd say the most important thing we're doing is listening to the fans. So we hope to reveal the team name sometime after the first of the year. We're going to take our time because we want to get it right, not only in picking the name and not only in the design, but making sure from a trademark standpoint that we don't have a false start. So if we pick the name February, let's say, uh, that gives us tons of time to get the other things right because then you design a jersey and that's a really important process. And the owners will went away in and all that and, and, and how a jersey feels and opportunities across, you know, the U.S. and said, oh, my gosh, the chance to bring hockey to this beautiful city in Seattle in a brand new arena. And that's why he's here. And he's going to be a, one of our great owners. 
over here, Todd. Right in the hey, corner. The, stand the, up. Stand up and show everybody your jersey. The jersey that you did call out. Yeah. So the Metropolitans, right? Yeah. So uh, 1917, the Seattle Metropolitans won the Stanley Cup, played the team from Montreal, and it was the first U.S. team to win the Stanley Cup. If you look at his jersey, somebody said to me once, it's clear they were smoking a lot of pot back in 1917 as well. So... Well, hey, Todd. My name is Jonathan West with the uh, Seattle Totems Junior Team. And first, a quick comment. Love that NHL Seattle, in its first couple of months getting started, has really dove into the community, really listening to the fans. How does it look moving forward with the Everett Silvertips, the Seattle Thunderbirds, both successful junior teams, 16 to 20-year-old kids that that's who's next, and even some kids playing for the Totems trying to get a chance to get into that league. How does the partnership look with NHL Seattle with those teams and even potentially high school hockey and maybe Seattle University having a team in the future? Father, you want to come up and make it? You know, growing the game is really important. We have four junior A programs here. These are kids, as you said, 16 to 20 years old. They stay in people's homes and billet. It's the purest form of hockey. And it's the primary means in which players are drafted is from those junior programs all across North America. I think there's 45 junior A programs in North America. We're really proud of the teams we have here. I've gotten to know the folks at the Thunderbirds. I go to their games, and we're here to make all that better, and we have to. There was a kid who grew up in Arizona watching the Coyotes in the desert, and he's now the star of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and those dreams come true, and we hope someday that very thing will happen here, that some young kid will skate for their first time at our facility or one of the other rinks and, and someday go on and be a star in the National Hockey League. And for that matter, our facility will also be open to figure skating and even curling. Have you ever curled? Okay, it's, I'm glad because it's normally associated with a lot of drinking, all right? And, uh, you're, you seem to be a student, serious student, but, but we're very committed to growing the game and we're going to really do a lot to do that. Hi, Todd. What's a unique, innovative experience you'd like all the fans to have at your new arena? We really believe an enemy of a game experience are wait lines, and they shouldn't be that way. In fact, there would be enough concessions to feed the crowd in an expedited way, but it doesn't always balance out in a building. 5G is critical, so we've got to have a building that has the 5G capacity to then build the apps that then can direct the fans where to go, whether it be the restroom, whether it be concessions. People talk a lot about traffic, but the app is key to that, but we want the app not just to work in town, we want it to work in the building, and a lot of these buildings become dead spaces, and 5G is a really important part, and that's not just true for our games, but for all events, but we're going to certainly build an app for the team that we, we would hope it would be one of the best in sports, especially in this town. I have a question, kind of more on players. Being an expansion team, not a relocating team, what's your approach to getting your players to buy in being that they likely will be removed from other teams and other like living situations. Well, Las Vegas launched two years ago, and that we have the same expansion rules they do. So we'll pick one player off of all teams, and those teams can protect a certain amount of forwards and defenders and goalies. Someone recently said, look, you just need three really good centermen, 
four really good defenders and one goalie, and you can kind of fill in around that. But what happened in Las Vegas is they were the players that the other teams gave up on for some reason. And then they came together and they went all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals in their first year. The other thing that's had a unique motivation there is there was a terrible tragedy that happened in Las Vegas. And that was the only professional team. And arenas become the gathering places for communities. And that's a key role. And so that tragedy happened just before the beginning of their season. And they completely changed what they had planned for opening night. And they played that night under the banner of Vegas One. They became leaders in helping that town heal. And it really had this unbelievable motivating factor on the team. And if you talk to the players after the season, it was a reason that they played with just a little bit more. And they went all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals, did not win, but they're playing great again this year. I would hope that those favorable rules will aid us in building a great team as well. There are a lot of students in the room today that I'm sure are interested in perhaps working for NHL Seattle. I'm just curious where you're at in the process and how students might get involved with potential employment opportunities. So we're going to hire, and there'll be an orderly process in which we do it. We're today 41 with Eric Pettigrew, but we'll end up with a staff of about 200. But then we'll hire hundreds of people to work at the building on game day. And, you know, I started at the very bottom selling tickets in a boiler room and never lost the passion for doing that. So if you have an interest, there's lots of ways to get involved. You can apply for internships, which are fantastic. You can apply for a full-time job. In fact, she's going to at the end. Do you, did you bring your resume? All right. And then there's just the experience of working in the building. But it's not just those. There's going to be a whole broadcast piece. There's the whole food and beverage experience. There's the whole music side. And so it's become a vast industry, and it's a great industry. We were talking about community, and I went to the Super Bowl and the Stanley Cup Finals and lost in both. Painful, but what I really love about this business is the ability to get back and and give back to community on a regular basis. So if it's something you're interested in, it is a great business, and, and I encourage you, just go in and fight, get your resume in, and we're going to hire 160 people. With the confirmation of the opening season for the NHL team, what is the next steps for bringing the NBA back to Seattle? Well, so first, if it comes, every NBA fan owes a debt of gratitude to the NHL because they got the building done. And that was the missing piece here. And so, and my life won't be fulfilled until we bring the NBA back. But what we've got to be is patient. And we've got to be respectful. And we have to be careful because we can't put the league in an uncomfortable position or ever get in front of the league. But they know what's going on here. They saw the ticket deposits. They see this grand building coming out of the ground. They now know it's not a renovation. All the principles that make it great for music and hockey will be the same principles that are going to make it an incredible basketball building for the Storm and someday the NBA. Let's thank Todd Lewicki for being with us tonight. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. 
You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.